0: Thank you. Let me share with you this morning the fact that two loves of mine actually came together this last year in a quite unusual way. First, my love of history reflected finally in the publication of that book on Franklin and Eleanor in World War II. Embarrassingly, it took me longer to write the book about World War II than it took the war to be fought, but it finally came out this last year. And then exactly at the same time was this 18-hour documentary on the history of baseball, where because Ken Burns needed an irrational female fan to go along with all the male faces on the screen, he kept coming back to my interview over and over and over again. So much so that everywhere I've gone this last year to talk about Franklin and Eleanor, people want to talk to me instead about the Brooklyn Dodgers or the Boston Red Sox. But these two loves are not really as separate, I've realized, as they might seem. Because I often root my love of history to the days when I was only six years old, and my father taught me that mysterious and wondrous art of keeping score so that when he went to work during the day, I could record the history of that day's Brooklyn Dodger game, play by play, inning by inning. He would come home at night and sit on the porch and listen for two excruciating hours as I went through everything that had happened that day. Well, when you're only six years old and your father thinks you're doing great as a miniature historian, it's a great impetus to keep it up later in life. In fact, he made it even more special for me because he never told me in those early days that all of this was actually described in great detail in the sports pages of the newspapers the next day. (laughs) So I thought without me he wouldn't even know what happened to the Brooklyn Dodgers, which meant that history had a magic from that day that it still holds to this. But I think if my love of history was planted in that childhood experience of keeping score, my particular style of writing, a love of storytelling and an attempt to fuse history and biography with as much detail as possible so that hopefully the characters can come alive for the readers, was rooted in the experience of knowing Lyndon Johnson when I was indeed not much older than most of you. I worked for him his last year in the presidency as a White House fellow and then helped him on his memoirs the last four years of his life. Now it should have been a time in his life when he had everything in the world to be grateful for. His career in politics had reached a peak, he had become president of the United States, he had all the money he needed, a beautiful ranch in Texas, an apartment in Austin, a fleet of cars with a traveling bars in every car, a movie theater in his own house, a sailboat, a speedboat, and he had this amazing swimming pool at his ranch that he outfitted so he could work at every moment. So as you tried to swim in the pool, floating rafts would come by with floating desks and floating notepads on top of them. <laughs> as you moved in another direction, floating telephones would come by, floating sandwiches. You could hardly move in the pool, but he hated exercise, so it was really quite perfect. But nonetheless, the man I saw in his retirement was a man who had spent so many years in pursuit of work, power, and individual success that he really had almost no psychic or emotional resources left in his retirement to really get through the days. Indeed, he had no hobbies, no interest in sports. The only movies he liked were documentaries about Lady Bird, his wife traveling through the South, or Lyndon Johnson traveling through the North. His family loved him. But the hole inside of him which needed the applause of millions was so deep that he couldn't find comfort in that. In fact, the only pleasure he seemed to get in those last years of his life was when he took guests into this amazing warehouse that he had at his ranch that was filled with gifts. And the ritual was that each time you went to visit him, you got to choose from a higher and higher shelf. So when i first knew him i was on the bottom shelf where i got a certificate that i'd flown on air force one i worked my way up to the next shelf where i got a scarf that had his name printed on it 500 times until finally after about a year and a half with great ceremony he said you've become a really close friend of mine you can get to choose from the top shelf i felt like it was an amusement park He said, I love this gift so much because you're gonna think of me every morning and every night when you open this wonderful gift. I opened it up and inside was the largest electric toothbrush I had ever seen in my life. And it had the official presidential seal on one side and then it had his smiling face on the other side. So I thought, oh my God, this man is right. I will think of him every morning and every night. But on a more serious vein, in the vulnerable state that he found himself in in those last years of his life, I realized later that he had opened up to me in ways he never would have had I known him at the height of his power. He talked to me of his fears, of his nightmares, of his sorrows, allowing me to see him perhaps as few others had. And I'd like to believe that that privilege is what opened up in me the drive to understand the inner man behind the public figure that I brought to that first book on Lyndon Johnson, the next book on the Kennedys, and my most recent book on Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. I think my great pleasure in studying Franklin Roosevelt was the contrast that he provided to Lyndon Johnson. For unlike Johnson, he was able to create a rich private life to go underneath that public life, filled with friends, with hobbies, with interests, a love of mystery movies, stamps, poker games. Indeed, the central aspect, I think, of his leadership during World War II was his ability to completely relax at the end of the day so that he could replenish his energies to get new thoughts for the day ahead. Indeed, in order to facilitate his ability to relax at the end of the day, he actually invited his closest friends and associates to live with him in the White House during the war, which meant that the White House was almost like a hotel during the war with permanent residents, fabulous people living right in that second floor of the White House, including, of course, Eleanor, probably the most extraordinary first lady we've ever known, a voice for people without access to power, the first first lady to ever hold press conferences. Indeed, she made a rule that only female reporters could cover her press conferences, which meant that every newspaper in the country had to hire often its first female reporter, (laughs) simply because of Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, in addition to Franklin and Eleanor, his secretary, Missy LeHand, who in many ways was his other wife, taking care of him when Eleanor traveled, lived in the White House. A beautiful princess from Norway, Princess Martha, came and spent the weekends. His closest aide, Harry Hopkins, had a bedroom right next door to his. And the incomparable Winston Churchill actually spent weeks and months at a time in the White House during the war bringing his habits with him, which included his stewards, his servants, and his habit of starting to drink from the moment he awakened in the morning till the moment he went to bed at night, somehow saving England in the process of all of that. (laughs) Well, I found myself so intrigued by the thought of all these fabulous people gathering at night in their robes and what wonderful conversations they must have had that I kept wishing I could see the second floor of the White House once again. I had seen it when Lyndon Johnson was president, but I never thought at 22 years old of asking, where did Eleanor sleep? Where was Franklin? Where was Harry Hopkins? I mentioned this on a radio show in Washington, and it happened that Hillary Clinton heard me, so she invited me to sleep overnight in the White House. And she said we could then wander the corridors and figure out where everyone had slept 50 (laughs) years before. So two weeks later, my husband and I went to a state dinner after which between midnight and two, President Clinton and my husband and Mrs. Clinton and I went through every room up there and placed who had been there during the Roosevelt White House. And the best part is that we realized we were staying in Winston Churchill's bedroom. So the whole night I could hardly sleep. I was sure he was sitting in the corner drinking his brandy and smoking his cigar. In fact, the best part of it all was that there was a great story that took place during World War II in that very bedroom, our bedroom, which was that on January 1, 1942, Roosevelt and Churchill were set to sign a document that put the allied nations against the Axis powers. But the allied nations were calling themselves then the associated nations, and no one liked the word. It just didn't have a rhythm or a ring to it. So early that morning, Roosevelt had awakened with a whole new idea of calling themselves United Nations. And he was so excited, he had himself wheeled into Churchill's bedroom to tell him the news. But it so happened that Churchill was just coming out of the bathtub and had absolutely nothing on. So Roosevelt said, I'm so sorry, I'll come back in a few moments. But Churchill, with this incomparable ability to speak at the moment, said, oh, don't worry, I have nothing, the Prime Minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the President of the United States. (laughs) So amazingly, Churchill sits there dripping from the tub, Roosevelt tells him the idea of the United Nations, and Churchill then has the presence of mind to quote an entire poem where the words United Nations have been used. Now that's greatness. Now after the President and Mrs. Clinton left, (laughs) All I could do really was to get in the bathtub and truly feel that I was in the presence of the past. (laughs) But I think just in closing, as I think of the contrast between the lives of Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt, it reminds me of a central wisdom that I learned in a seminar with the Harvard psychologist Eric Erickson when I was in school at Harvard. And that is that the richest and fullest lives somehow achieve an inner balance of work, love, and play in equal order and that to pursue one to the disregard of the others is to open oneself to ultimate sadness at the end of one's life, whereas to pursue all three with equal dedication is to somehow make possible a life filled with fulfillment and serenity and peace. I think on a personal level I will always be grateful to my father for instilling in me that passionate love of baseball so deep that it remains a big part of my life today. Even now as I go to Fenway Park with my three sons, I follow the rituals that I followed with my father at Ebbets Field so many years before. And even though he died before my sons were born, so they never got a chance to see this wonderful man, sometimes if I close my eyes against the sun and picture the players of my childhood, Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, I can feel my father's presence. And to be sure, my three sons have learned about this wonderful man through this irrational sport of baseball. So I wish you not just to rule the world, but to rule your love of life and play as well. Thank you very much. Time for two questions, it is said. I don't have a microphone, but I have a question. Sure. My name is Eric Klein, I'm from Kansas City. I was wondering, what's your next project? What's your next project? <laughs> the voice went deeper. <laughs> Actually, I'm working on a short memoir about growing up in love with the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1950s as a result of having gotten involved in Ken Burns' documentary. And the wonderful thing is that because I only do research and the only comfort I have is not sitting with a blank piece of paper and making up things, but doing as much research as possible so it can come alive, I found every single person who lived on my block in Rockville Center, Long Island, including my best friend who moved away when we were 12 years old and had a, a bedroom right across from the driveway with mine so we could talk to each other all night long I haven't seen her since we were 12 she now lives in europe where she's a professor of literature and has a photographic memory of our childhood she wrote me seven letters that are so fabulous in which she said she even remembers that i learned to read 6 months ahead of her and she said we'd be going to jones beach and i was such a pest because i would read every billboard along the way and she finally said to me what are you doing and i said oh you'll understand soon once you start reading you can never stop <laughs> And then i actually found the people who owned the butcher shop around the corner from me there were a butcher bunch of butchers around the corner from me who were all new york giant fans our hated rivals when we were dodgers and the summer of 1951 when i was eight years old the dodgers were doing great all season until the end the giants came caught up in a playoff game at the end when a famous home run was hit by bobby thompson the new york giant that destroyed our dreams forever well i couldn't go back in this butcher shop for weeks because i was too embarrassed They used to call me Ragmop because my hair was always kind of messy, which I think it still is to this day. So not long after I wouldn't go back in, a whole group of flowers, the first flowers anyone had ever sent me in my life came to my house, Dear Ragmop, please come back. We miss you. (laughs) (laughs) One other question. Yes. Hi. My name is Matt from New Jersey, and I'd love to know um, who do you think is the greatest president that we've had and why? Oh, what a tough and wonderful question. I think if I had to choose, I'd have to choose three of the greatest presidents (laughs) Um, mainly because the different centuries produce different qualities that are necessary. I have no doubt that what makes George Washington so important was that he created the office. Everything he did was was a ritual performing experience so that it created the precedence for the future. I mean, for example, when he first became president, He wanted to be called his mightiness. And after a while, Jefferson talked him out of that and said, this is not a kingship. We're not calling you his mightiness. And he agreed that he would be called Mr. President. He wanted to come in on a golden horse with golden suit. And they convinced him that he could come in on a brown horse with gold buttons on a brown suit. (laughs) But nonetheless, the most important thing he did was to have a dignity that created that office. And then after two terms, he willingly gave it up. Think of what would have happened if he had stayed in office. He could have then been a president for life, and that might have been the form of the presidency we had ever since. No doubt in the 19th century, Abraham Lincoln, who is the subject of my next real book after the memoir is done, is the greatest president we had. Not only because of the way he led the country during the Civil War, but that he put those twin values of keeping the nation together and making the nation a more just nation by ending slavery. He will be forever entwined in our memory, I think for as long as we are a nation. And then again, in the 20th century, this man I just finished spending six years with, Franklin Roosevelt, is my candidate for the greatest president. He took this country through its two greatest crises in the 20th century, the Depression and World War II. I think the most important quality he had was a confidence in himself, in the country and in the American people so that he made our country feel, and I sometimes look back at that World War II era with a wistfulness that I wish you could have once again today. The country had a common sense of purpose, a common mission. People worked 24 hours a day in those factories to beat the Axis powers. There was a sense of nationhood, not the fragmented country we live in today. And I just hope for you as young people that you will once again experience that time when government can be believed in again, when the politics and the people that are leading our country are people you admire, And perhaps when you yourselves are doing it, you can bring back that sense of hope that we once felt in this country in the past. Thank you very much.